Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your copy this morning of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and what we've seen in the last handful of weeks is how Israel broke their covenant with God. Israel went directly against God's very clear command about idolatry and crafted a golden calf. Their impatience led them to this idolatry. And it required Moses going down to stop the bleeding, to destroy the idol, even to destroy many of the instigators. And it required Moses going to the Lord as a mediator to beg for mercy so that God would not destroy Israel, so that God would not give them what they deserved by breaking this covenant. And last week we saw that God agreed to keep this covenant and to stay with Israel. And we saw him pass by Moses in the cleft of a rock and declare his name to him. And we saw that God said to Moses that he, here we go, is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then we saw that God said to Moses that he would do things for Israel that would cause the nations to marvel. Now remember, before Israel broke this covenant, God had given them many laws to obey in Exodus 20 through 23. And then in Exodus 24... Moses had given those laws to Israel, they agreed to keep them, and they ratified this covenant with the shedding of blood. But then, when Moses went back upon the mountain, they rebelled against God. So now, this covenant that's been broken is being renewed, and part of that renewal is that God is going to rehearse He is going to rehash, to repeat and summarize those laws, those covenant stipulations that Israel had already agreed to. And he does that in Exodus 34, verses 11 through 28. We covered these laws in much detail over the course of the summer and early into the fall. So this morning we will merely summarize what God says to Israel in repeating these laws here in these verses. So in verse 11, the Lord begins by saying to Israel, Obey my commands. And then he gets more specific. He tells them in verse 17 that they're to have no other gods and no graven images, repeating the first two of the Ten Commands. In verses 11 through 16, he says that when they get to the land of Canaan, the promised land, that they are not to be near the Canaanites because if they are too near them, that they will become like them and they will begin to worship false gods and be more like the world than be holy like the Lord. Then in verses 18 through 20, the Lord says to remember the Passover, to never forget the great salvation God had given to them from their Egyptian bondage. 
He says in verses 21 through 24, Remember the Sabbath, one day a week set aside as holy for me to remind yourselves who you are. To remind yourselves, I'm the God of your time. And also remember my feasts and festivals, all of which remind Israel of who God is and who they are and the great salvation they've been given. And then they're told in verses 25 and 26 that they are to worship God His way. He calls the shots on how He is to be worshipped. He's not looking for creativity. He's not looking for someone to mix it up and do something unique. Instead, He wants them to be faithful to His Word and worship by the book. He wants them to offer the right kind of sacrifices. And He wants them to offer their best to the Lord. So for 40 days, Moses is atop Sinai receiving this rehashing of the law to come and give to the people of Israel. And these laws seem to be all over the place. They seem to be disconnected from one another. And yet, if you think closely about them, there is a glue, there is a theme that binds them all together. And this is our first truth this morning, and that's this. Distinct laws like these create a distinct people. Distinct laws create a distinct people. Israel has been called by God to be different than the world around them. They've been called to be set apart as holy, to be a holy priesthood to all the nations. Their beliefs, their worship, their community that they live in, and even their time and their schedule and their priorities are to be different than the world in which they inhabit. And these laws actually require that they be distinct from the world by being distant from the world. God says that if they fraternize too much with the Canaanites, it will lead Israel to become like the Canaanites, to worship like the Canaanites, to believe and value things like the Canaanites. Israel could not be holy and could not influence the nations if they were not different than the nations. And the same thing is true for God's people today. Friends, we should regularly ask ourselves, if we're serious about following the Lord, who are my people? Who am I listening to? Whose voice looms loud in my ear? Who is influencing and shaping the way that I think and the things that I value? We should ask those questions because almost always, if you show me a person's friends, If you show me a person's influences, I can tell you what kind of person they are. There are many today who dabble in sin and feel no conviction over things that they used to avoid and be ashamed of. Why? Because they have found themselves in a community of people listening to folks who do not value the Lord. So that sin has become normalized and therefore is ignored and God's holiness is neglected. Many today are materialistic. Many today care far too much about possessions, what they own. 
about appearance, what they look like, about reputation, what others in the community think about them, about the American dream. Why? Because the people that they spend time with care about those things and it rubs off on them. Many today are influenced by folks who are not living for eternity, but who are living for the moment. And those people's voices ring louder so often in our ears than God's Word does. Many today will listen to the voices of those who are disgruntled with God instead of listening to the voices of the people of God and the Word of God. We are so busy oftentimes entertaining ourselves with ungodly, mindless drivel while neglecting to consider the greatness of God in His Word. Friends, who we spend time with And who we listen to matters because God has always called His people to be distinct from the world. We cannot live on mission and we cannot be distinct as an individual if there's nothing different between us and our unbelieving neighbor or unbelieving co-worker. If there's nothing different in the value system and the way that we think and who we listen to than those around us. And the same holds true for us corporately as a church. A church cannot influence its community if it looks no different than its community. When churches leave behind the bold, preaching, holy, living, Bible-submitting, sin-killing, countercultural living business and venture instead into the entertainment-providing, felt-needs-meeting, ear-tickling, sin-ignoring, stat padding world, they cease to be a light, they cease to be a church, and they no longer have a voice worth listening to. God gives His people distinct laws to make them a distinct people. That's true for Israel, and it's true for God's new covenant people, the church as well. But the question, when we hear that, remains... How then should we become distinct? How do we obey God's laws and be different from the world around us? How can we shine like stars in the dark world around us, as Paul calls the Philippians 2 in Philippians chapter 2? I think the answer is found in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. Look at this text with me and consider this truth. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after 40 days, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people 
of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Moses is so in tune with God, That when he approaches the people of Israel, they notice that he is shining and they sit up a little straighter. Moses has been with God for so long, hearing God's word, dwelling in God's presence, gazing at God's majesty, that Moses is now different. Moses is holy. Moses is radiant. Moses is shining in such a way that caused people to marvel. What has happened to Moses is what God wants to happen to the people of Israel. He wants them to shine and be different and distinct from the nations so that the nations are drawn to the true God. Israel's to be a distinct nation. How? By dwelling with God, not the world and the Canaanites. Israel is to be a distinct people by hearing God's voice, not listening to the voice of the fallen world around them. Israel is to be distinct from the nations around them by beholding their God. And the reason why is our second truth. We become like what we behold. We become like what we look at, what we gaze at, what we reflect on, what we behold. Israel's been warned that if they are too near to idols, if they are too near to the Canaanites, they will become like them, stiff-necked and rebellious. But they see from the example of Moses that if they obey God and dwell in His presence, they will be holy and they will please Him. And they know that that is true. Why? Because Moses, who's been with God, is literally shining. If Israel will behold the Lord as Moses has, they will be the type of people who change the atmosphere of a room when they walk into it. And the same thing should be true of us. Friends, we as believers should be so enamored at the glory of God, devouring His Word so ferociously, pursuing holiness and putting sin to death so diligently, living on mission with an eternal focus so faithfully that when we walk into a room, the conversation changes. Not because we are a self-righteous, holier-than-thou type who judge others and like to hear our own voice. But the 
atmosphere and the conversation should change because we are so sold out to the Lord that there is no mistaking who is our supreme king and treasure. Because we're so committed to Him that we are even willing to courageously speak His truth even if it's unpopular and risky. People should take notice and the conversation should change when we walk in the room because we have so oriented our lives around the Lord and His Word that it is clear that it is Him and not us that are calling the shots. People should sit up straighter and the conversation should change because we care for others and meet their needs and care for souls so faithfully that we are constantly modeling sacrificial love towards others. People should be different around us because we practice what we preach and everyone knows that we love and treasure God supremely above all. Friends, we will become a light in our dark world and we will become a holy influence on those around us when we are constantly beholding our God, not fixing our eyes on horizontal, peripheral things, but lifting our gaze to the glory of our Lord. You might ask, how do I do that, Nick? I don't have a special tent in my backyard where God comes down and shows Himself, right? I don't have a Mount Sinai up the road that I can go climb to to see the Lord. God is not hovering around in a cloud atop the church. So how am I supposed to behold God? How practically can I do that? And this is the answer. Friends, we can behold our God when we see Him in His Word that we read and we study, and we memorize, and we meditate on, and we hear preached and sung and prayed, and we obey it and apply it. When we open up the Word of God, it is not just a book of history, or a book of stories, or a book of laws. It is a book that enables us to behold our God. But we can also behold our God as we look at Him working in the lives of other believers around us, in our community, in our church even. When we see the Lord working in people's lives, softening hearts that once were hard, creating a spiritual hunger that used to be non-existent, turning consumers into givers and servants, it will embolden us as believers with confidence confidence that this gospel that we preach and pray and proclaim and sing is true and it has the power to change lives. When we behold God in His Word and in the lives of the saints, we will become holy like God. We have to ask, is that us? Does that description of beholding God and becoming more like Him, is that true of your life individually? Are you committed to the Lord in such a way that when you walk in, people sit up straighter? Convictions arise in people. They want to be better when you show up. Friends, I'm not saying people need to be scared to talk about things around you because you're judgy. 
I'm not saying that you need to stand in the middle of town square and preach. That's not God's calling on everyone. I'm not saying in the workroom you need to go after them with hellfire and brimstone, but I'm saying can people see in your life and in what you value and in the choices that you make day after day that something is different? Is there something compelling about your life? Friends, when we behold God, it will make us shine like stars in the dark night sky. And we must shine like that if we are to be distinct and if we are to please God. We must gaze at His glory and focus on Him. But there's one more thing I want to show you in our text. I'm not going to read verses 20, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 35 through 40, because what these Verses, what these chapters are, is it is a repeat of what God has already told Israel in chapters 25 through 31. Over the last handful of months, we've looked at all the laws about the tabernacle and the priesthood garments. You might have been here and you remember the slides that told about all the different parts and what needed to be constructed. And what happens in verses 35 through 40 is now Israel is going to actually obey God and build and make the things that God has already given them to make. And most of these chapters is just rehashing the details of what God God has already said. God commanded Israel to give an offering, to give a contribution. He wasn't just going to snap his fingers and make a building for the tabernacle. Instead, the people had to sacrificially give, and then from what they gave, they would build what God had commanded. So here in Exodus 35, Israel gives sacrificially and generously. They give enough so that God's plans can go forward. Then in Exodus 36 through 39, each of those items in the tabernacle and the priesthood garments are constructed exactly as God had commanded them earlier in the law. And Moses goes out of his way, in particular in Exodus 39 and 40, to point out Israel's obedience. I encourage you to read through this on your own, but I just want to reference a few places where he specifically points out that Israel obeyed God down to the letter. In Exodus 39, verse 5, verse 7, verse 21, verse 26, verse 31, verse 32, verse 43, and in Exodus 40, verse 16, and verse 32, among others, the text says that Israel and Moses did as the Lord commanded. It points out how frequently they do exactly as the Lord commanded, so often that it's easy to read over it and miss its significance. They did as the Lord commanded. And the point that I believe Moses is trying to make in recording those details is clear. For God to dwell near Israel and stay in covenant with them, they must Obey Him. Why? Third and last truth this morning. Because obedience is the delight of a distinct people. Obedience is the delight of a distinct people. And the same thing is true today. 
Friends, true believers obey God. I don't care what you say you believe. If you say you believe it, but you disobey God, then what you say you believe isn't real. That's the argument of James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. There's a massive difference between saying faith without works is dead and saying works is what saves you. Works is not what saves you. But friends, obedience is not in vogue today. Obedience is not something that we like to talk about or sing about or reflect on. And I believe that a big reason why that is true is because for decades and decades and decades in the Bible Belt of America, we have had a moralistic, law-based, behavior-focused type of message being proclaimed. And after decades and decades of morals and laws and behavior modification strategies, there is a generation of people today who no longer want lists of rules to obey and threats of judgment if you don't and any kind of accountability in their lives. After decades and decades of one extreme, many today have gone to the opposite extreme. And in the name of God's grace, many today treat obedience to God as a Christian cuss word, even going so far as calling it legalism and religion. They've responded to a self-righteous, behavior-focused type of message of moral reform that lacked any grace and any love by overcorrecting. They've responded by turning instead to a belief in a grace that not only is greater than all your sin, but also a grace that allows you to comfortably live in your sin without repentance. And friends, that overreaction is as satanic as the false gospel that was proclaimed in the first place. When we preach a message that says you must do this, this, and this, and this to be saved, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ that is based on the grace of God and the finished work of Christ. But when we respond and overreact to that message by saying, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do what I want, get out of my business, I'm going to ignore God's word, I'm going to make my own rules, and I think I'm going to heaven when I die, that is a satanic overreaction. Both extremes are dangerous. Friends, God's grace pardons and forgives our sin, but it does not give us a freedom to live in our sin. God's saving grace will forgive us, but it is always accompanied. Listen to this. It is always accompanied by God's transforming grace that empowers us to say no to sin. 
God's grace doesn't mean God no longer has rules and standards. God's grace doesn't mean that God doesn't call His people to surrender to Him as Lord and obey His clear commands and live for and long for Him. God still has rules and standards. God's grace doesn't mean that obedience is no longer important. Friends, God's grace empowers us for obedience. God's grace gives us a desire for obedience. I'm not saying that Christians are perfect people who never sin. Every one of us, myself included, is a testament to that. Every one of us battles with sin, battles with temptation, battles with doubt, finds ourselves crying out to God if we're truly right with Him. Lord, why do I still struggle with this? God, why do I care about this that I shouldn't anymore? That is part of the normal Christian life. But there is a drastic difference between feeling conviction over sin and running to the cross to rest in the gospel and just planting your flag in the ground and saying, I know the Bible says this is sin, but I'm going to do what I want because I'm the king of my life. That is unrepentant sin. And that is the response of someone who does not know the Lord in a saving way. We can call conversion and salvation and define it however we want, but if we're not defining it the way the Bible does, then we're defining it in our own way and we're making something up. Friends, that is the message of the gospel is that God's grace saves us for our disobedience, but also by the Spirit's power with new hearts and new affections empowers us for obedience. We're not saved by our obedience. But salvation, true salvation, will produce in God's people God-glorifying, Spirit-led, Christ-exalting Bible-saturated, joy-pursuing, eternal-minded obedience. Always. Israel had to obey God to be His people, and so must we. Because obedience is proof that we truly know and love and treasure and have been saved by the Lord. When we consider these truths, that we should be distinct from the world and we should delight to obey God and we are going to become like what we look at and behold and are influenced by it, it leaves us with a question that I want to ask you in closing. And I want to ask you, don't put your Bibles and your notes away. Don't start thinking about lunch. It's coming, okay? I'm, I'm, it's not going to be long. Just, just do some business with the Lord and be honest for a minute. Is your life different from the world around you? Do your values, your priorities, your schedule, your thoughts, your choices, and your obedience set you apart from your classmates, from your co-workers, from your neighbors, from your community that does not know the Lord? Or is your life and your values and how you think and what you're pursuing line up exactly with them? Be honest. Be honest. Do you know God's Word well enough to actually know His standards and His calling for your life and what He's made you for? And if you do, are you obeying Him? 
Are you walking in obedience, keeping in step with the Spirit of God? Friends, we would do well to pause and consider those questions. Not just in a moment in a sermon, but taking some time this afternoon to think about them. Taking some time this week to to reorient our lives around the Lord and ask those hard questions that sometimes are painful to ask. But the book of Exodus and these chapters we've summarized today show us Israel is called to be a distinct people who behold their God and obey their God. And we are too. And to do that, we must look at and behold our God and gaze at His beauty. Friends, God's glory, God's presence, God's beauty, God is nowhere more clearly put on display than in the person of Jesus Christ. God took on flesh. God became man. God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus is perfectly holy and distinct. Jesus does what we can't do perfectly. And He bears the judgment we deserve in our place. He defeats the enemies we could never conquer. And through His finished work, He empowers a people to behold and obey and trust in God. Friends, if we want to please God, if we want to one day dwell in His presence forever in the fullness of joy, then we need more than effort. We need a Savior. And that Savior has come. That's what this season is about. He has come in humility to identify with us. And He has finished the mission His Father sent Him on. And friends, in God's grace, when we repent of our sins and believe in that Savior, God gives us new hearts that long for God and that love to obey Him. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus came, but it's that Jesus is able to pardon our sin and He's able to change us and empower us. The good news of the gospel is that what God demands of us, obedience and surrender through Jesus' finished work, God gives to us. He gives us hearts that love Him and long for Him. So friends, if we individually and as a church will be holy, if we will live lives that count for eternity, then we must behold our Savior, believing in Him, resting in Him, surrendering to Him, glorifying Him, even obeying Him. And as we trust in and lean on and behold our Savior, we will become a distinct people who treasure the right things and live the right way and make the right choices. Friends, Jesus is our hope and our joy. He's our forgiveness and our peace. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, our power, our future, and our King. Jesus is the reason for the season, but He's also the reason 
for our whole lives. And what He deserves from us is honest reflection, is faithful submission, and is reverent worship as we behold His greatness and we see the glory of God in His wonderful face. Let's pray together and respond this morning as the Spirit leads us. God, we come to You now. And our prayer, God, is that You, Lord, will give us a vision of You that surpasses all the things that this world offers. God, I pray right now just for a few more moments, Lord, that You will help us to engage with You and consider Your greatness. to respond in repentance or renewal. God, whatever their need, God, help us to do business with you as we consider your greatness. God, we love you and we praise you and we pray that your spirit...